friends. You're listening to How the West Was Cast, a podcast dedicated to the best of the Western movie genre. It all began when Milford Farnsworth heard Horace Greeley say, Go West, young man. And like a dope, Milford went. Learning the hard way, the taking ways of the West. Getting into a red-hot strip poker game. You're looking at the wrong goat. When Jesse James shows him some of his loot, it's too much for Milford. He goes all out to do as Jesse does. Get it up. Shoots his way out of all kinds of trouble. Well, that's the fastest draw Jesse ever made. That's Milford. Milford? Tell him I want to see him. Falls for Jesse's ball of fire. Don't miss the fun and fireworks when Jesse gets wise to the guy who's stolen his gal and his guns. And wait till you see the bang-up surprise ending when they try to put Bob Hope in orbit around that heavenly body, Rhonda Fleming. And there's a reward for you, too, when you see alias Jesse James. That was the trailer to Alias Jesse James, a 1959 Western comedy starring Bob Hope. And on this special episode of How the West Was Cast, our topic is Jesse James. Hello, my name is Matthew Chernoff, and I'm a screenwriter and an entertainment journalist in Los Angeles. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson, a film historian and the chair of the Department of Film and Media Arts at the University of Utah. Now, before we continue, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Western Podcast. That's at, as in the at symbol, Western Podcast, all one word. Tell us about your favorite Jesse James movie, or suggest another topic that you'd like us to cover on a future episode. Also, if you enjoy our show and want to help support it, the best way you can do that is by subscribing to it on whatever platform you use. Now, for this episode, we're doing something a little different. Rather than our usual discussion format, we're instead presenting a lecture titled Jesse James on Screen, delivered by our very own Andrew Patrick Nelson. This is an updated version of a popular talk that Andrew has given in the past. And with that said, we hope you enjoy Jesse James on Screen. My talk today is about cinematic representations of that notorious outlaw and bandit, the Robin Hood of the Ozarks, the bad man of Missouri, Jesse James. Jesse James has, as a character, appeared in countless films and television programs from the early 1900s to the present day. He's been played by leading Hollywood stars like Tyrone Power, Robert Wagner, Robert Duvall, and Brad Pitt, as well as by many actors who time and memory have forgotten. Movies have chronicled every phase of his career, from his early days as a Confederate irregular to his later years after the disillusion of his partnership with fellow outlaw Cole Younger, following the doomed raid on the First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota, all the way up to his death at the hands of the brothers Robert and Charlie Ford. On screen, Jesse James has even met Frankenstein's daughter. In the 1965 film, 
Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. He wanted to save a friend. She wanted a world of obedient killer zombies. Jesse James will kill us for what you're doing. Jesse James will be caught and hanged in Shelby. Fiendish Frankenstein monster stalks the West's most fearless outlaw. Save your strength, Jesse James. You will need it. Well, he technically meets Frankenstein's granddaughter in this movie. Today, however... I'm going to focus on six of the most successful and best-known James Westerns. These are Jesse James from 1939, I Shot Jesse James from 1949, The True Story of Jesse James from 1957, The Great Northfield Minnesota Raid from 1972, The Long Riders from 1980, and The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford from 2007. James is part of a select group or pantheon, maybe, of American historical figures associated with the annexation, migration, and expansion west of the Mississippi River that followed the conclusion of the American Civil War in 1865. This fraternity of frontier heroes include Lawman Wyatt Earp, best known for his participation in the famous shootout at the O.K. Corral in Tombstone, Arizona, Henry McCarty, alias Henry Atrum, alias William H. Bonney, better known as Billy the Kid, the baby-faced bandit who was reported to have killed 21 men, one for each year of his life, before being gunned down by friend and lawman Pat Garrett, scout, marksman, peace officer, and professional gambler James Butler Wild Bill Hickok, war hero turned Wild West showman William Frederick Buffalo Bill Cody, and Major General George Armstrong Custer, the decorated army officer who made his famous last stand and died with his boots on at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Like Jesse James, each of these men was a subject of great interest and notoriety in the popular press of his day, or slightly after his day in some cases. Their exploits, factual and otherwise, were memorialized in innumerable newspaper stories, biographies, and dime novels. The contentious legacies of these and other heroes of the American West have also been a subject of ongoing debate for well over a hundred years as generations of researchers and writers have repeatedly combed the shifting sands between myth and history, looking for something approaching truth. Drawing upon, entering into, and influencing this dialogue, American cinema has provided us with multiple renditions and iterations of each man's story. These narratives run the gamut from celebratory commemoration to scathing indictment. Yet, contrary to what we may expect, or have read, or both, the developing cinematic representation of each man does not progress or evolve straightforwardly over the years from one pole to the other, from naive portrayals of frontier supermen to more realistic depictions of fallible and often deplorable mortals. Instead, most movies offer us something in between. The general narrative of Jesse James is one of an innocent man driven to banditry in response to the oppression of his people by a corrupt and unscrupulous establishment which is usually represented in these stories by the banks and railroad. Stripped of its 19th century trappings, 
This narrative is, of course, pure Robin Hood, but Missouri is a long way away from Sherwood Forest. The real Jesse James, if I can risk such an expression, was far from a hero. He didn't rob from the rich and give to the poor. He robbed from everyone, for no one but himself, and killed many of those who found themselves in his path. The question of how Jesse James was viewed, his reputation, both during his life and afterward, is still a complicated one, and the lines between those who regarded him as a hero and those who regarded him as a villain are not always clear, and, as we'll see, don't always correspond to regional divisions in the manner we may expect. The short answer is that James meant, and continues to mean, different things to different people. This is perhaps not a wholly satisfying answer, but it's at least a realistic one. An interesting aspect of James's notoriety is how what we now call media played a role in shaping his public persona, not only newspaper stories, but also fiction and music. For example, a popular folk song, The Ballad of Jesse James, appeared shortly after James's death and gained great popularity. The song features in a scene from the 1949 film I Shot Jesse James, directed by Samuel Fuller. This film chronicles the life of Robert Ford, played by John Ireland, after he has shot and killed Jesse James. In this scene, Ford enters a bar, seeking a moment's respite from the notoriety his infamous deed has brought him, and he's approached by a troubadour, whom he offers to buy a drink in exchange for a song. I just blew into town. I can use a drink, mister. I'll sing you one everybody likes. song everybody likes. Jesse James was a lad that killed many a man. He robbed the Glendale train. He took from the rich and gave to the poor. He'd a heart and a hand and a brain. Young Jesse had a wife who mourned for his life. Three children, they were brave. But the dirty little coward what shot Mr. Howard has laid Jesse dead in his grave. Cause it was Robin Ford, the dirty little cat. Anything wrong, mister? I'm Robert Ford. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Ford. I didn't know. So everybody likes it. Oh, nobody likes it. Very much, Mr. Ford. Go on, sing it. Oh, please, Mr. Ford. I want to hear it. Cause it was Robert Ford, the dirty little cow. I can't. Sing it. Cause it was Robert Ford, the dirty little coward. Wonder how he feels He ate of Jesse's bread And slept in Jesse's bed Then he laid Jesse dead in his grave Jesse James sat at home On a Saturday night Talking to his family brave Robert Ford come around like a thief in the night and lay Jesse Dade in his grave. 
never saw my side of the law could take Jesse dead or alive. Twas his friend Robert Ford who collected that reward by shooting Jesse James on the sly. Young Jesse had a wife who mourned for his life. Three children, they were brave. But the dirty little coward what shot Mr. Howard has laid Jesse dead in his grave. This song, lauding James as a hero with a heart and a hand and a brain, and condemning the cowardly Ford, also appears in other films about James, including the true story of Jesse James and the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. A number of historians have pointed to the popularity of this ballad as evidence that sympathy for the outlaw was widespread. What these histories fail to account for, however, is how folk songs often have umpteen versions. The tune and title tend to remain the same, but the lyrics are infinitely mutable. I'm admittedly no musicologist, but my own research has revealed at least 10 versions of the Ballad of Jesse James, most of which are dated to around the same time. More importantly, an equal number present James in a much different light than the version we just heard. I submit to you this example, sung on a 1982 episode of the long-running American variety show, Hee Haw. Slapping, yay, who and bunch of hee haw and hooligans, you? Now, here's Grandpa Jones and the hee haw banjo band. You know, I just kind of like to call them old Slim's Pickers. <laughs>
without a program like Hee Haw, with its nostalgia for an old-fashioned, laid-back, authentic, rural, and arguably southern way of life, that we might expect to find Jesse James celebrated as a hero. Instead, we're presented with the spectacle of a down-home picnic, presided over by none other than guest host Slim Pickens, celebrating not the life, but the death of Jesse James. Now, this shift from celebration to denunciation could be read as reflecting changing attitudes about Jesse James after revisionist histories have revealed him to be more villain than hero. This is, in fact, a common way of interpreting how Western movies in general change over time, as new research reveals just how far removed from history the Western's traditional portrayals of America's past were, the genre, it's argued, begins to reflect this new understanding. In tone and form, the genre over time becomes less tidy and less naive. Cowboy heroes, cool under pressure and adorned in crisp, clean costumes, give way to sweat, mud, and rags a rougher, more realistic veneer that denotes the Western hero's new psychological complexity and moral ambiguity. At the same time, a degree of self-reflexivity and social disenchantment enters the genre, a reflection, it's claimed, of changing audience attitudes. Beginning in the 1960s, the Western's incessant celebration of the taming of the lawless frontier by brave Americans struck many viewers as not just hackneyed, but dangerously retrograde, as, for example, Images of deadly conflict on a new frontier in Southeast Asia beamed into living rooms across the United States. The genre began to reflect these concerns by forcefully rebuking, either through critique or parody, the ideology of cowboy heroism inherent in earlier Westerns. As a means of illustration, we can contrast a scene from Henry King's 1939 film, Jesse James, with one from Arthur Penn's The Missouri Breaks from 1976, both of which present one of the most famous scenarios in the Western genre, the train robbery. In Jesse James, the criminal act is one of vengeance against the corrupt railroad that has been unjustly displacing Missouri farmers. Under a full moon, James, on horseback, rides alongside the train and hops aboard. He then climbs to the car's roof and hops from car to car, advancing towards the engine. It's an impressive physical feat. He's then able to single-handedly bring the entire train to a halt. Hands up! Keep right on driving until I tell you to stop. What are you aiming to do, partner? I ain't aiming to do nothing. I'm doing it. I'm holding up this train. The whole train? Slack up at this next curve. Stop her just this side of that clump of trees around the bend. It's your funeral, partner. When his gang boards the train, they work with methodical precision. Although they do steal from the passengers, they are exceedingly polite, asking only for cash so that the passengers can be reimbursed by the railroad. The only piece of jewelry taken is the stick pin of the picture's villain, and it's taken by Bob Ford, one of the brothers who ultimately betray James. In contrast, the motivation for the train robbery in the Missouri Breaks is purely personal gain. The outlaw Tom Logan played by Jack Nicholson, boards the train not through impressive horsemanship, but by sheepish subterfuge, hiding beneath the hay in the livestock car. From there, he proceeds uneasily, not toward the engine, but backwards, towards the mail car, which he unhitches from the rest of the train. His gunpoint instructions to the mail clerk, Nelson, are followed with indifference, 
and his boasts are met with skepticism. Move over there. Move. Move. Or I don't want you to uncouple that car. Hurry up. I can't do it. I'm not sure I'm able to do it. Just get down there and pull the pin out. Come on. I'm a clerk. I'm not mechanically Hurry up. Clerk. Hurry up. Nelson. Nelson, you're doing all right. You do this right, you can say you've seen Jesse James and live to tell the story. You're not Jesse James. You ain't Charlie Serino. Just give me the money, Nelson. I'm not permitted to touch this. Yet the robbery is ultimately successful. In spite of, or maybe because of, Tom's decidedly amateur status, his plan displays a remarkable degree of common sense. Hiding on the train during the day is certainly easier than jumping onto it from a galloping horse at night. Disconnecting the mail car is an efficient way of not having to deal with the conductor and the passengers. And robbing the safe is likely to yield significantly more money in less time than robbing individual passengers. All of which goes to show that you don't need to be Jesse James to rob a train. With all of that said, you may think that the Jesse James of 1939 would not lower himself to hiding in the hay, but you'd be wrong, as he does just that in order to elude capture later in the film following a failed bank robbery. So what lessons should we take from all of this? When more recent Westerns criticize or parody past Westerns, they only invoke aspects of those earlier films. Aspects that tend to confirm the grounds on which the criticism is being launched. In the process, the complexity of older movies is often lost. The comparison I've just made between Jesse James and the Missouri Breaks, between a classic Western and a so-called revisionist one, also suggests that the filmmakers of the latter had a much more nuanced understanding of earlier Westerns than we may otherwise have suspected. Meaning that, in the absence of this understanding by the audience, the complexity of more recent Westerns can also be obscured. There's also something to be said for trying to understand films within the social and cultural context of their production and reception. Early Hollywood had, in fact, made a number of attempts at adapting the story of Jesse James for the screen, all of which proved to be controversial. The first, The James Boys of Missouri, released by SNA in 1909, was met with strong disapproval from the trade press. Wrote one critic, the notorious James brothers murdered, robbed, and set fire to buildings. One can wish heartily that the effort of making the film had produced something elevating, or at least harmless, instead of the seeming realism of bloodshed, crime, and brutality. It's important to keep in mind that this was only 20 years after James was killed. The next film about James would not come until 1915, followed in 1921 by two pictures starring James's son, Jesse Jr., the 1927 Paramount release, Jesse James, prompted scores of letters to the Studio Relations Committee. Contrary to what we may expect, the majority of these letters came from filmgoers in the South, who condemned Paramount Pictures for supporting outlaws and making a criminal into a hero. 
The challenge facing 20th Century Fox in its attempt to bring the legendary outlaw to the Technicolor screen in 1939 was how to negotiate the exploitable value of the name, Jesse James, alongside the recognition that his legendary status was based on banditry. The solution, which was no secret, was to present a version of James that was quite obviously far better than the real man ever was. As director Henry King told the New York Times in 1939, what we were trying to do was create a Jesse James who would be worthy of the legend, for we knew that no matter what we or any other creators of fiction did now, the legend would persist. Our effort was to make the legend a better one, morally as well as dramatically. From the earliest attempts to bring the James story to the screen, filmmakers were well aware of the unsavory aspects of his legend. The idea that these films were based upon some misapprehension, or even upon the belief that the films would at least play well in the South, is false. The 1939 film, the first truly successful James picture, presented audiences with a narrative rooted in history, but consciously mythologized. And in the process, did more to rehabilitate James in the popular consciousness than did nearly 70 years of dime novels and stage plays. This emphasis on mediating the truth manifests in varying ways in the adaptations of James's life story that were to follow. The true story of Jesse James, as its title implies, purports to offer a more accurate portrayal of the bandit's life. Here is the epic story of America's greatest outlaw and his march of terror from preacher's son to bandit king. The truth about the man who invented train robberies, daylight bank holdups, whose name struck terror across 1,000 miles of borderland. You really like killing, don't you? It comes easy in our business. Well, is that why you chose the business, so you go on killing? Jesse James. That name means something. When those Yankee bankers here had spoken, they start shaking. Director Nicholas Ray's film claimed to offer us the story of Jesse James stripped of all fiction, lies, and legend. Yet, in a classic example of Hollywood doublespeak, the trailer's concluding titles tell us that this is a story as seen through the eyes and hearts of the people who loved him. The eye and heart being two of our less reliably objective organs. The film does expand its purview to include the Civil War and introduces the reflexive device of Jesse's awareness that a measure of his fame owes to exaggerated dime-novel accounts of his exploits. Yet, despite claims to being the true story of Jesse James, as the poster states, the real story really told for the first time, the movie's screenplay is based not on any historical account, but on Nanali Johnson's screenplay for the 1939 film. Johnson claimed to have extensively researched the 39 Project, but Joe Francis James, granddaughter of Jesse, put it well when she said of the resulting picture, about the only connection which it had with fact was there was once a man called James, and he did ride a horse. What's more, the true story of Jesse James incorporates entire sequences from its predecessor, all cropped to the cinemascope aspect ratio. What were the two action set pieces of the 1939 film, the train robbery, and the Northfield raid, become the two action set pieces of the 1957 film. The rationale for recycling these scenes was partly economic expediency, and partly because filming scenes like the escape from Northfield 
that included a number of dangerous horse stunts, including one where a horse died, was no longer possible by 1957. Yet it also provides us with a sense of how enduring elements of the mythical James, established by the 1939 film, continue to shape the bandit's cinematic representation. Subsequent screen versions of the life and times of Jesse James would continue to make various claims to authenticity and veracity. The advertising for the 1972 Western, The Great Northfield, Minnesota Raid, made a variety of declarations about its truthful representation of outlaws Jesse James and Cole Younger. The movie offered the real story of legendary outlaw Jesse James's most daring bank robbery, and a depiction of what outlaws Younger and James were really like. As if that wasn't enough, the film's advertising also promised that the movie would show, quote, the West the way it really was, even though the majority of the movie takes place in Minnesota. To be fair, the picture does, like many of the Westerns of the 1970s, present a comparatively unglamorous view of life in the latter half of the 19th century. In contrast to the pristine towns and clear vistas of earlier Westerns, the world of the Great Northfield Minnesota Raid is dirty, overcast, and populated by ugly people wearing ill-fitting clothing. The question to entertain, again, is whether this representation of frontier life indicates self-consciousness, namely a critique of the sanitized, unhistorical depiction of frontier life in earlier Westerns, or is simply representative of changing norms of verisimilitude. Certainly, some Westerns of the 1970s manifest varieties of violence, cynicism, and period detail, not present to the same degree and in the same fashion as the 1940s, but this is true of almost every other film. Moreover, claims to truth are common to the vast majority of movies that have a biographical component, regardless of genre. As we've seen, the representation of that truth will always be subject to multiple determinants, industrial, cultural, and otherwise. The Great Northfield Minnesota Raid actually doesn't stray far from the established Jesse James mythos. The opening narration sets the scene. Even before the wounds of the Civil War had healed in Missouri, the railroads came swarming in to steal the land. Everywhere, men from the railroads were driving poor, defenseless families from their homes. And that's when a fresh wind suddenly began to blow. It was other Clay County farmers, the James and Younger boys, coming to the rescue. They tarred and feathered the railroad men and drove them from the land. From that moment onward, they were outlaws. But the people of Missouri would never forget what the boys had done for them. In addition to the ill-fated bank raid of the title, the movie also stages other famous episodes from the James mythology, including him giving mortgage money to an aging widow only to steal it back from the landlord. 
The film is structured around the opposition between the thoughtful Cole Younger and the psychotic James, the central conceit being that James continually gets the credit for Younger's ideas and exploits. Jesse is regarded as having invented train robbery and credited as the first to carry out a bank robbery in broad daylight, although the truth, in the movie at least, is that Cole is the innovator of both. The plan for the raid on the First National Bank of Northfield was a plan Cole discarded in the outhouse to be used as toilet paper. Jesse later claims the plan for the raid came to him in a vision. In the Great Northfield, Minnesota Raid, we find a concession to, and even embrace of, the inescapability of myth. The devil may be in the details, and that is where screenwriter-director Philip Kaufman channels the movie's energies, but the storybook Jesse James' narrative is not displaced. Circumstances and motivations are changed, but, paradoxically, outcomes are not. When James asserts that he can't think of a single honest man his gang has ever robbed, his brother Frank replies, "'Cause we robbed the robbers, that's why. Just the railroads, the bank, all the damn plug hats.'" Although the Great Northfield, Minnesota Raid does present a less flattering view of Jesse James, it is still one based on the myth of Jesse as the last rebel of the Civil War, fighting to avenge the wrongs wrought upon the South by the Yankee nation. This acknowledgement of the inescapability of myth would characterize all subsequent James narratives, including the next major feature film to chronicle the outlaw's exploits, The Long Riders, from 1980. This film has been woefully neglected in writing about the Western, the result of falling into the no-man's land between the end of the revisionist Western in the mid-1970s and the genre's small resurgence in the mid-1990s following the successes of Dances with Wolves and Unforgiven. The film's episodic narrative follows the members of the gang as they balance various robberies with family and personal life, disband, and then reform for the doomed job in Northfield, Minnesota. They are pursued, without success, by agents of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, whose actions, including the accidental murder of Jesse and Frank's younger brother, only increases sympathy for the outlaws. In contrast to earlier portrayals of Jesse James, here the legendary bandit is presented as a quiet, noble protagonist, yet one whose motivations are never made entirely clear to us, thus leaving the matter of his heroism open to question. This is, perhaps to be expected from a movie described in its theatrical trailer with the ambiguous line of, They were known as the Long Riders. This is their story, and it's as close to the truth as legends can ever be. This Jesse James speaks of his outlaw activities in the context of needing to support his family, but mentions little else, not the Civil War or the plight of the South. In an early scene, Clell Miller gives a matter-of-fact account of the gang's inception to an admiring prostitute. He's all in the war. Robbed the first Yankee bank. Because we didn't know no better. Didn't seem like a good idea at the time. After that, we was just in the habit. So I guess we'll just keep on going until they lock us up or hang us. The Long Riders makes a point of emphasizing that it is the youngest member of the group, Bob Younger, who has the most veneration for the Southern cause, despite having never fought for it. Bob is not held up to any ridicule for his enthusiasm, though. He's shown to be just as capable as the other members of the group, and just as cognizant of the realities of violence and gunplay. This is typical of the movie, which balances attention to detail, 
from period atmosphere to the minutiae of interpersonal relationships, with a kind of moral detachment. By virtue of it being about Jesse James, the Long Riders sides with the outlaws, but the gang's pursuers are not depicted as corrupt or vindictive. Just as other characters in the film never question the outlaw activities of the Jameses and Youngers, the film, too, refrains from passing judgment. The Long Riders also displays arguably the largest degree of generic self-consciousness of any cinematic James story before or since. The climactic, failed robbery of the First National Bank of Northfield is a telling example. The sequence features an overtly stylized depiction of violence highly reminiscent of the westerns of Sam Peckinpah. Quickly cut footage of the outlaws desperately trying to escape from the town is interspersed with slow-motion shots of the gang members being bloodily slashed by bullets. Yet, present in equal measure, and not incongruously, are devices we can recognize from much earlier westerns, including Jesse James from 1939. During the aftermath of the failed bank robbery, the Long Riders reproduces the slow-motion spectacle of riders on horseback crashing through a shop window. Jesse meets his demise in the picture in familiar fashion, shot in the back by the coward Robert Ford, but the representation of the act draws not only on myth, but a far earlier assassination, that of the audience at the end of Edwin S. Porter's 1903 film The Great Train Robbery, faced with a bandit shooting his pistol directly into the camera. Considered in concert with the picture's relative dispassion towards the events and characters it portrays, this attention to crafting visually fluid sequences that maximize the mise-en-scene and exploit genre conventions could suggest that The Long Riders is ultimately a shallow film. The movie's narrative does have a greatest hits quality. We see the gang riding a bank, robbing a stagecoach, holding up a train, the failed Northfield raid and its aftermath as Frank and Jesse escape while the younger brothers are apprehended, and finally, Jesse's death at the hands of the Fords. In contrast to earlier Jesse James movies that cover the same terrain, The Long Riders is decidedly lacking in exposition. Just as judgment is withheld, so is the kind of contextualizing information, dates and places, that are common to Westerns. The opening credits appear over a series of slow-motion shots of the outlaw gang riding through green hills. At the conclusion of the sequence, a title card appears that reads, simply, Missouri, after the Civil War. In a way, the Long Riders preempts attempts to equate updates with corrections, as if earlier cinematic representations of James and other frontier heroes were somehow wrong. At the same time, it also resists making direct connections to elements of the James mythology, as the last rebel of the Civil War or the Robin Hood of the Ozarks. This makes the Long Riders the rare Western that not only acknowledges the distinction between myth and history, but also the distinction between history and truth. conclude today with a few remarks about a more recent cinematic rendition of the life and times of Jesse James, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, released in 2007. Although the movie depicts a less celebrated period of James's life, his decline following the failure of the raid in Northfield, Minnesota, it nonetheless restages scenes from earlier westerns, especially Fuller's I Shot Jesse James. Here up the Glendale train And he stole from the rich 
and he gave to the poor. He had a hand and a heart and a brain. Well, Jesse had a wife to mourn for his life. Three children, they were brave. But that dirty little coward who shot Mr. Howard has laid Jesse James in his grave. It was Robert Fold, that dirty little coward. I wonder how does he feel For he ate at Jesse's bread And he slept in Jesse's bed And he lay poor Jesse in his grave Well, Jesse had a wife To mourn for his life Three children, they were brave But that dirty little coward who shot Mr. Howe has laid poor Jesse in his grave. I'm Robert Ford. <laughs> you get yourself home, son, okay? Come on. Get out of here! Get out of my place! These restagings include Robert Ford's confrontation with a troubadour singing The Ballad of Jesse James, which we just heard, as well as Ford's short-lived stage career, in which he and his brother Charlie reenact the murder of James on a nightly basis. What I find most interesting about the picture, however, is how the theme I've explored in earlier Jesse James movies, the mediation of truth, is incorporated into the film both stylistically and thematically. The movie is punctuated by moments of intermittent voiceover narration from an unseen, unknown source. He was growing into middle age and was living then in a bungalow on Woodland Avenue. He installed himself in a rocking chair and smoked a cigar down in the evenings as his wife wiped her pink hands on an apron and reported happily on their two children. His children knew his legs, the sting of his mustache against their cheeks. They didn't know how their father made his living or why they so often moved. They didn't even know their father's name. He was listed in the city directory as Thomas Howard. And he went everywhere unrecognized and lunched with Kansas City shopkeepers and merchants, calling himself a cattleman or commodities investor. Someone rich and leisured who had the common touch. These passages include shots in which the image is slightly distorted. The center of the frame is in focus, yet the edges are warped and blurred. The meaning of these dysmorphic shots becomes clear following Jesse's murder when the narrator informs us that a photo of the outlaw's corpse was taken to be viewed in a stereoscope. The stereoscope is a device in which two photographs of the same object taken at slightly different angles are viewed together, creating an impression of depth and solidity. Stereoscopes were popular throughout the 19th century, offering viewers what at the time seemed realistic 
immersive views of faraway places and famous people. As the narrator of the assassination of Jesse James informs us, it was this shot of James nestled in his bed of ice that was most available in sundries and apothecaries to be viewed in a stereoscope alongside the Sphinx, the Taj Mahal, and the catacombs of Rome. Throughout the film, the unseen narrator's factual, verbal accounts of James's life is coupled with contorted images from the popular culture of the day. Thus, our knowledge of James in this film has been doubly mediated through an apparently omniscient narration and through the distorting lens of the stereoscope. Exactly why Jesse James and his 19th century frontier brethren had such purchase upon the 20th century American imaginary is a complex question, deserving an episode of its own. Most histories of the Western argue that the long-standing infatuation with the cowboy hero in American culture is a reflection of society's ambivalence about the costs associated with progress and a resulting valorization of a mythical figure who embodies the best features of both civilization and wilderness. Though plausible, this may be a little too neat. What a close examination of the history of representations of figures like James reveals is not any one ideological position, but competing ones, suggesting not a homogeneous but a heterogeneous audience. Variants of a folk song can appear at the same time, offering vastly different perspectives on the same subject. The first films about Jesse James were made by men in New York, and they were objected to by people from the South. Negotiating between competing concerns, between myth and history, thus becomes the defining feature of cinematic representations of Jesse James. More than simply exposing inaccuracies and half-truths, though, the close analysis of how James and other legends of the American West have been represented in the movies reveals the richness and complexity of both Western film and Western history. Dangerous men, hooded and masked, ravage the land, robbing, killing, setting fire to homes and farms, evading the law by blaming all their crimes on Jesse James. To prove his innocence and bring the raiders to justice, Jesse James rides again. Well, that wraps up our Jesse James episode. Until next time, I'm Matthew Chernoff. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson. And you've been listening to How the West Was Cast. Well, that was our show. We thank you kindly for listening and hope you'll come back again real soon. Till then, keep your saddle oiled and your guns greased. We'll be seeing you. 